That is Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 12. So I'll give you just a minute to, to get there in your own Bibles. Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 12. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that when what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. May God bless the reading of his word. Father God, we ask you uh, to be with us today. God, we ask that you will... Humble our hearts, Father, um, as we close this section of Matthew and pause for a season to reflect on the Advent. God, I uh, acknowledge and know, God, and hurt with those who are here that are hurting, Father. God, sometimes the sermon and worship service can um, fail, Lord, to bring their minds out of their sufferings. But, Father, I pray, Lord, that today... You don't just distract them from their sufferings, God, but that you will speak to them peace and hope in the midst of suffering and help them to see, Lord, that this Christmas we can celebrate because you're the God who steps in to darkness, not the God who avoids it. You're the God who uh, brings light to the deepest, darkest parts of uh, our fallen life. And God, you're the God who will bring us back into the day. God, we love you and we pray this in your son's name. Amen. Earlier this year, my wife and I had an opportunity to visit the Yad Vashem uh, Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem. It's an incredibly beautiful complex. Um, It's got trees all over the place. Schindler's Tree, if you watch Schindler's List, you can find Schindler's Tree there. It's the trees planted by the memorial, uh, by the victims, the families of the victims, uh, to remember the heroes of the Holocaust. And so, um, amazing place, and it's filled with with room after room of heart-rending displays and pictures and artifacts from the Third Reich's mass murder of the Jews. The further I walked into the museum, the the more intense it felt like the misery and the death and the deep sorrow became. I found myself eventually in a room where there was a pile of shoes, abandoned shoes, old, nasty, dirty, blood-stained shoes worn by prisoners of concentration camps, shoes of all sizes, Shoes I could have worn, shoes my kids could have worn, shoes my wife could have worn, shoes from men, women, children, high class, high heel shoes, low class, uh, Coleman sweeper shoes. There's all kinds of shoes from all different kinds of age groups and social statuses. It's a poignant testimony of the effects of sin in the world. I just remember that image sticking in my mind of all these personless shoes standing there. And, and next to the, what they called the shoe memorial were images of camps uh, like Bergen-Belsing in Auschwitz. Places where it was cold and snow lined the ground and razor-wired fences, brick buildings, soldiers with machine guns and 
corpses lying on the ground. Now, they, they tell you not to talk about the Holocaust unless you absolutely have to, but I, I, I know of no other way to get us to feel Isaiah 9 than to point to those kind of horrific images. I want you to imagine standing in a place like Auschwitz, remembering the shadow of death, remembering the, the mass murders that have happened there, imagining the genocide and the, the unfair suffering and the un- injustice that happened and the brutality that happened, and someone telling you in the middle of Auschwitz that this is the place where the world's redemption would begin, that this is the place where God would begin the renewal of all creation. That this is the place where all things would be restored. They promised that one day every gun will be broken. Every machine gun that the Nazis held would be thrown into a pile and burned. Instead of piles of shoes from innocent victims, there will be piles of boots abandoned by soldiers. Instead of the startling sights of skeletal images of, of people who have been starved to death... That hunger will be completely done away with. Every belly will be full. People will eat, be satisfied, and there will be an overabundance of that which is left over. No more prison guards, no more overlords, no more Third Reichs, and no more death. Because there's one who's coming who bears the name Mighty God. And he will dwell not in the high palaces of Jerusalem... He will dwell not in Caesar's court in Rome. He will dwell not in the White House in D.C., but he will dwell in the darkness of Auschwitz and bring light to the deepest, darkest place on earth. Now, that may seem absolutely hard to imagine. The the restoration, the the actual renewal, the reversing of everything bad, beginning in such a bad place like Auschwitz. But that's essentially what Isaiah 9 says when he speaks of a light dawning in the land of Zebulun, in the land of Naphtali. Matthew, having read Isaiah's promise, knowing what this land was like, knowing its history, knowing its past brutality, knowing its injustice and all the thousands that had died there, it is there that he sees Jesus moving to Capernaum by the sea, living in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali as a sign that the world's restoration has begun in Jesus. So I don't know where you're at today. I don't know what level of darkness you happen to be sitting in. I know that many of you have some dark places in your home. I know for some of you, it's the marital bed where you know that your husband did things that he shouldn't have done. For some of you, it's the bedroom where you have a loved one that is suffering and can't get up out of bed and you're hanging on. For some of you, it might be a hospital room that you can't hardly walk past without remembering what happened there. The good news of the gospel is whatever deep, dark room that you have in mind, whatever deep, dark place, whatever suffering that you have, Jesus promises that his light will even reach there and that he will turn back the darkness. The hospital rooms that our loved ones died in, the graves that our loved ones are buried in, the broken places that we live in will one day be completely redeemed. And the scars of sin will be no more. The scars of death will be no more. 
the scars of pain and suffering will be no more. That's the message that we have here at the end of Matthew 4. Now, we follow Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. He's coming out of that temptation time. And then Matthew says, Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. That may seem like a simple move to us. Galilee's a kind of a pretty place. And uh, the, the view from the sea is awesome. So it didn't seem like that big of a deal. But not for Matthew. He says, In leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, that's important, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. Now, I might bore some of you guys today, those of you who hated geography or hated history, you might find this to be boring, but I cannot preach this in any other way without you understanding why it was important for Jesus to come to Zebulun and Naphtali. Matthew knew the full history of those places. This, this would be, so, so like saying words like Zebulun and Naphtali and Galilee is like someone saying to us, World Trade Centers. Right? It's like someone saying to us, Auschwitz. We immediately have all these connotations of brokenness and mourning and sorrow and death and, and anger and hurt and pain. And that's essentially what hits the chord here in Matthew 4 when he says that Jesus, the Messiah, the King, the promised anointed one, comes to something worse than the World Trade Centers. To a place where there's extreme death and mourning and sorrow. Not a vacation resort. Not a kingly palace. But the pits of brokenness itself. Zebulun and Naphtali, if you know your, uh, if you turn to the back of your Bible, you see these little maps, and they are up in northern Israel. And one, at one point, they were the epitome of abundance and prosperity. They were, uh, so, so you've got Zebulun, which I believe was by the sea and had an abundant fishing uh, port. And then you've got Naphtali that was said that she would be so bountiful, it'd be like a deer being fruitful with those. That, that was the image that we're giving in, given in Genesis 49 of Zebulun and Naphtali. Fast forwarding, we know that the kingdom splits because of idolatry. God allows the kingdom to be fractured. So you've got the southern kingdom of Judah, the northern kingdom of Israel, and the northern kingdom, though both kingdoms decline into sin, the northern kingdom declines the quickest. There's almost no good king at all in northern Israel. Every single one of them were terrible people. Every single one of them rebuilding idolatrous places that, the, that God had said not to allow be built in Israel. And so as they continued into their idolatry, they built golden calves. They built their own worship places where they committed atrocities like child sacrifices. God sent his judgment which came on the hills of the Assyrian hordes that came to invade Israel. And my friends, I've got to tell you, if you want an image of how violent the Assyrians were, we have no modern picture of exactly what that would have looked like. These are brutal people who have no fear of any kind of war crimes or tribunal afterwards. These are people who knew how to torture you to the end of your life, and then bring you back and start again. These were those kind of people. Burning houses, burning fields. They didn't want anything you had. They just wanted it dust. 
Women, men, children, all alike, slaughtered and and slain and broken down. And if that wasn't enough, if that wasn't brutal enough, they then took all the people who had survived and shipped them off to Assyria where they would be lifelong slaves. They didn't want to just destroy Israel then. They wanted to make sure it would never rise again. And so the king of Assyria decides to send people groups that he's conquered, people from Babylon, from Kutha, from Ava, from Hamath, and from Serevaim. And he repopulates northern Israel and tells them to all mix. Serve your gods, mix with each other. There will never again be a pure Israelite in northern Israel. And from here on out, Israel will be a mongrel group of people who do not know what it's like to purely worship God. He throws him a bone and says, I'll even send you a Levite priest to teach you how to please the God of the land. But he is to be worshipped alongside all the other gods. Second Kings 17 gives us this picture. Second uh, Kings 17, 41. So these nations feared the Lord and also served their carved images. Their children did likewise and their children's children and their children's children as their fathers did. So they do to this day. That's a picture of Zebulun and Naphtali in Jesus' day. Spiritual apostates, rejected by the Jewish people as people who do not belong in the people of God, displaced, impoverished, broken. Everyone living there can trace their family back to some form of exile, some form of mass slaughter, some form of nasty, bloody Warfare. That's the history that we have. That's the geography that's here. To think that anything good would come from these northern tribes is not only unlikely, it's laughable. Laughable. To say that the world's redemption would start here is idiocy. I mean, this is as broken as the world can be. My friends, we haven't seen this kind of violence, these kind of scars, these kind of burn marks on buildings the way that they would have. I'm I'm probably dampening your Advent season with all this talk. But as Christians, we're not people who turn our eyes away from the marks of sin and suffering and sorrow. This is the world we live in. This is the reality. We can't pretend it's not there. That's, this is the reality. And we have to look at things like this in the face. Because what comes next gives us hope. My friends, you cannot appreciate the brightness of the light if you do not first understand how deep the darkness goes. You cannot understand the promise of life until you've tasted the bitterness of death. You cannot experience God's warm hand wiping away tears until you've actually cried. That's the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. Royal Messiahs should not be going to Zebulun and Naphtali. Davidic kings should not muddy their feet with such nasty places like Capernaum. 
And yet that's where Jesus does the blunt of his work. That's where Jesus begins. He rolls up his sleeves. He says, let's set up shop. Where, Jesus? In Jerusalem? Nope. All right, great. Let's take it straight to Rome. Nope. We'll start in the pit. And we'll work our way up. My friends, the fact that Jesus does that tells us a lot about who he is and the kind of God that we have. He doesn't start on the fringe. He doesn't start in the twilight. He starts in the depths of darkness. Now, Matthew presents Jesus' geographical movements as a fulfillment of Israel's history and prophetic promise. According to him, Jesus moved from Nazareth to Capernaum, and here's what he says, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Well, what did Isaiah say? He said this, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Now, it comes in the context of Isaiah 9, which comes after Isaiah's prophecy that Assyria is coming to conquer Israel, and it's going to reach all the way up to Jerusalem. And we know that story where Hezekiah is surrounded by 185,000 Assyrians. They're ready to demolish the city. There's nothing standing between them and complete victory, and yet God miraculously saves Jerusalem. But Israel's completely wiped out. There's nothing left. This is torched earth type of warfare. And yet, Isaiah says that there will be a day in this land that the darkness will be lifted, the light will shine again, the nation will multiply and be fruitful once more, yokes will be broken, the oppressor's rod will be shattered, marching boots and battle garments will be burnt, and all this because for unto us a child is born, for unto us a son is given, his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and on his shoulder will be the government. He will sit on his father's throne for all eternity. That's the beauty of this deep darkness is it's from there that God renews the earth. It's from there that God recaptures Eden. It's from there that God makes dark deserts into beautifully bright gardens of Eden for us. And it all happens because a son has been given because Christ comes and he sacrifices himself. So, my friends, when you read the Bible, every move that Jesus makes is redemptive. Every move that Jesus makes is redemptive. And his motion sets God's grace on full display. Christians worship a God who does not expect us to work our way up to him... We worship a God who has come down to us. We worship a God who doesn't say, claw your way out of the pit, and then maybe we can have a reconciliation again. No, we have a God who slides down into the mud, gets muddy himself, and pulls us out back into the light. You have a God who from heaven he came and sought you in your deep, 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 deep darkness. 
You have a God who stepped into your death, who called out your name from the tomb and raised us up together with Christ. He comes down, it says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were dead. You were dead. You were buried. It was, it was final, definitive, brokenness. And what it says, but God, because of the great mercy with which he loved us, raised us up. How far up? He seats us in the heavenly places. From the lowest to the highest. That's essentially what we get here. Had light not come, had light not stepped down, had God not taken on flesh, had Jesus not gone to Galilee, sinners would be left in sin's graveyard. You and I would still be dead. Now as it is, light did come and he brought life to the land of darkness in the land of the dead. Now when Jesus arrived in Galilee, he proclaimed... The same thing that John the Baptist proclaimed at the Jordan River. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now that the light has come, it was time for people to turn away from the darkness. Can you imagine God stepping into the pit, God stepping into Auschwitz, delivering the captives, and they saying, We'd rather stay? It's not so bad. We're kind of used to this. Can you imagine someone being in the darkness so long that when the light shines, they can't stand to look at it, and not only can they not stand to look at it, they hate it and want it to go away. Repentance demonstrates the only appropriate response to the king's coming. If Jesus truly is the king, and he has come to, brought, to bring the restoration and renewal of the world and to turn back the scars of sin, the only appropriate response is to continually to turn from sin. Turn from that which he's trying to kill. Turn from that for which he died. Turn from that for which, from which he conquered. Turn from the Pharaoh. Turn from the Egypt. Turn from the slavery. Get out of the prison cell. Get out of the Auschwitz and follow Christ. According to Paul, if you, if, you, if you want to trace this on, restoration begins not just with a new heaven and new earth free from suffering. If, you, if, you, if you're like me, why did Jesus not begin by just creating a new world? Why not do away with all the effects of sin first? Well, because the effects are just the symptoms, my friends. Sin's the disease. He must bring people out of sin. He did that once, he realized. He realized God renewed the world once and yet did not give man a new heart. It happened back in the days of Noah. Fresh start, whole, whole sinful generation, completely blotted out and washed away. Starting again with a righteous man named Noah, but who still has the same fleshy sinful heart that he had before the fall. Guess how many generations it took before the world was back in its worldwide corruption and violence. New creation doesn't begin by wiping away the effects of sin. New creation begins by obliterating sin's hold first. 
Paul says new creation, a new heaven and new earth begins with new creations, new creatures in Christ, new people. And so that's why Jesus comes to Galilee to save for himself a humanity who will then repopulate the new heaven and new earth in righteousness and complete perfection. New creation begins with new people, with new hearts, because of the Savior who comes to save. Now, we move on to the next section in verses 18 through 22. It records Jesus, the calling of Jesus' first disciples. Matthew does not describe the official calling of his disciples until chapter 10. And so I've got some things I want to say about calling 12 disciples and what that means for restoration. But I'm going to save that for chapter 10. So if you don't care about anything else but that, come back at chapter 10 and you'll hear um, some riveting things about 12 disciples. Um, But he calls to himself Simon Peter, Andrew, James, and John. And it continues and propels forward this theme of restoration. There are three primary truths I think that we get from verses 18 through 22. First, Jesus' calling of these fishermen marks the beginning of the great reversal. These are the very first people who will follow Jesus as Lord. These are the very first people who will become Jesus' disciples and follow him throughout all of his work in Galilee, all of his work in Nazareth, all of his work in Jerusalem. And who were the very first? Not the religious elite, right? It's not the Pharisees. It's not the Levitical priest. It's not even the kings. He called to himself fishermen. Um, we've been to some fishing ports. And if you've ever been on the cruise, you've been to a fishing port. Just take a big old whiff off the dock. That fishy smell, that's what these men would have smelt like. Cracked leathery hands. Later in Acts, we find out they were uneducated. They're, in other words, they're not that bright. Constant, and, 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 and it's dirty work, right? I mean, this is, this is a place without hand sanitizer, okay? These men were gross, nasty. He, he, and, but in, in all of this, Jesus shows where his work begins. Redemption starts with the lowest, the poorest, and the simplest. Not with the highest, not with the richest, not with the mightiest. He starts from the bottom. That's where redemption begins. He starts with them. And it is a part of this great redemptive work where those who have hope in their worldly wealth are made poor, and those who are poor for the sake of Christ, those who know that they have nothing to give, thats not, it's not just talking about material wealth here, it's talking about those who know they have nothing in and of themselves. It's flipped. It's flipped. The low are exalted, the high are humbled. The strong are weakened, the weak are strengthened. That is the great reversal that we see happening here, and it's consistent with what God has done throughout all the Bible. And it, and it shows that this is how Jesus is going to work in the world, not by calling people who would naturally look like they should serve Jesus, but by calling the ragamuffins of society, by calling the, the fringe people, the less-than-holy people, fairly confident Peter had a tattoo and John smoked a stogie. We know for sure that there's a zealot in there among them, so 
Who knows? He's always ready to stab people. But that's who Jesus calls to serve him. That's where redemption begins. The lowest of the low. Second, the calling of the disciples also demonstrates that the exile is soon to be over and that the end time sifting has begun. Do you realize that Jesus is the rock upon all humanity is divided? The two factions. Those who are saved and those who are not. Those who are people of God and those who are alienated from God. Jesus is the rock that divides humanity. He offers salvation to those who trust, but it's judgment for those who reject. These fishers of men, it's an important image, it's an important metaphor that comes all the way back to Jeremiah 16, where God promises judgment on a sinful people, and they run and hide, and they think they're going to be able to get away from these uh, invade, this invading army. He says, I'll send fishers and hunters and catch you. You will not be able to escape judgment. It's Jeremiah 16, 16. But then you get it here in Matthew 4 where he says, I'll make you fishers of men. And then you fast forward to Matthew 13 and he uses the metaphor again in a parable that describes both end time judgment and salvation. So in other words, these fishers are going to be people that draw on the net, they save the good fish who trust in the gospel, and they throw away the rebellious fish. There's a great division that happens. That being said, God sending out the fishermen seems to be this end-time sign that the great division of humanity has come. Those who will be saved will listen to the message these fishers proclaim. And those who will be judged will reject. My friends, we have a, we have a gospel of salvation and judgment. Is a gospel that offers salvation to those who trust and believe in the very same message that the apostles gave us. But it's also a warning of judgment to come for those who do not take up this great grace and gift of salvation. This is, this is the, the, the great breaking down of humanity. You think that people are divided by political lines. No, they're not. You think that people are divided by geopolitical lines. No, they're not. Not even by what their favorite sports team is. Not even by how happy they are that OU won yesterday. That's not the great divider of humanity, though I'm tempted to make it that. The great divider of all humanity is how we respond to the gospel And these disciples will catch, they'll throw out the nets, draw in, and those who respond positively to the gospel will find salvation, and those who reject will be led to ruin. Now third, I think it also models how all should respond when Jesus calls. You hear three words, immediately, left, and followed. Immediately, left, and followed. They responded with immediate action. They left their, note, their nets, their boats, and even their father to follow Jesus. They might not have been that educated. They might not been, have been religious elite. They might not have been that wealthy. But one thing they knew, they found the pearl beyond great price. They found the treasure that was worth selling all and following. They might not have even known fully who he was. Or what he would do. In fact, later in Scripture we're going to find out Peter has no clue what Jesus has come to do. And yet, when Jesus called, he understood that Jesus was worthy. 
Jesus was worth leaving behind the boats. Jesus was worth leaving behind the nets. Again, this is a surprise that fishermen, fishermen are the ones that are seeing this. The rich young man refuses to leave his wealth for Jesus. The Pharisees refuse to acknowledge their need for him. They see him as as a peer, someone to be critiqued and criticized, not someone that they need for salvation. Kings like Herod say, show me a miracle magic trick, Jesus. Pilate doesn't even recognize truth when he sees him, when he stares at him in the face. It is simple fishermen, childlike fishermen, that the treasure of heaven is revealed in, not Jerusalem, in Galilee, in the place of brokenness. Then the final section of this chapter, Matthew writes, And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. Notice how Matthew describes Jesus' ministry. First and foremost, it was teaching and proclaiming the gospel. And then comes the healing and the, and the healing of all afflictions. Okay? Jesus' healing ministry is meant to be a foretaste of the gospel that he was proclaiming. He was proclaiming that the kingdom of God was at hand. And so by turning back diseases, by doing away with, uh, paral- by, by healing paralytics, doing away with seizures and pain, he was demonstrating the kingdom that was coming. He was giving a foretaste of the kingdom that was coming. He is the one who is pushing back the curses of the fall. He is the one that is undoing every effect of sin. So his healing ministry demonstrates that he's the great revitalizer of humanity. The restoration himself come in human flesh. That's who Jesus is. Now, I just want to acknowledge as someone who has suffered, we, I've buried loved ones and we've had a household full of turmoil before and when I was younger. And I remember my dad could not read passages like this. Because Jesus doesn't always work like this, does he? My dad would always say, he did it once, why couldn't he do it for your brother? He healed Lazarus, but he's going to leave a baby in the grave? This didn't didn't compute. And so I just want to acknowledge, this is hard for some people to read. Jesus did this once, why not do it again? That's Matthew's point. He's not going to try to answer every question that you have about healing in this passage. I don't know why some prayers are answered and some prayers are not. And no one can give a satisfying answer for why God heals some but doesn't heal all. No one can give a satisfying answer about that but God himself. There is one thing that Matthew intends for you to see here, though. That the one who can and will bring a new heaven and new earth, free from tears, free from pain, free from disease, free from death itself, has come. That's his point. He wants us to have hope in that. He wants us to look to the person, not just to the 
Not to the effects of what the person does, but to the person. The restoration has come. Do we trust that he is bringing restoration? That he is actively working? He's not lazily sitting back in his heavenly recliner waiting for his own time. No, he is working. Darkness is lifting. The light is shining. Light has shone in the darkness and the darkness will not, cannot, will never overcome it. It's just a matter of time. I'm with you. It hurts that we still go through these things. I'm with you. Every funeral we experience, I'm on the lines with you asking, why not now? Why not yesterday before they died? Why not 10 years ago before the diagnosis was given? Why not before the accident happened? Why not before the cancer scans? And yet Matthew 4 calls our attention not to just the effects of the restoration. I promise you this. When Jesus comes back, the primary focus of your attention will not be that your back pain is gone, will not be that your body has no cancer, will not be even that there are no more graves. The primary focus of your attention will be on the one who did it. That's what Matthew wants us to see. He wants us to see Jesus and all of his beauty. Yes, he brings restoration. Because he is the restorer. He's the renewer. He's the revitalizer. He's the savior. And he wants us to hope in that. I don't, I don't know all the answers from this text. All I know is that Matthew intends for us to see Jesus, the son of David, has come and that has initiated an end to suffering. And when he returns again, it'll be final. It'll be finished. It'll be done. Now, Matthew describes the beginning of Jesus' ministry, which began in Galilee of the nations. That's important, Galilee of the nations. He starts there, and guess what? Matthew ends there. Where Jesus began his ministry is the, also the place from where he ascended, where he gave the Great Commission. He goes back to a mountain in Galilee and then tells them, the work that began in Galilee of the nations now must go to all nations. Literally, the restoration of the world begins in the pit. It begins in the gross gore of Galilee. It begins in the dark pit of Capernaum. It begins on the mountainside of Zebulun and Naphtali, where the whole world from here on out will experience blessing and salvation and restoration and reconciliation with God. Peace on earth because a man came and lived in Galilee. That's the good news of the gospel. Because that man died. He was rejected in Galilee of the nations, brought salvation to all nations. I think it's intended to give us hope. If Jesus could make a place so broken as Galilee, as the place I've described to you many times over now, if he can make that the beginning of his redemptive ministry, what what can he do with my brokenness? It's hard to imagine getting darker than this, but, but, but what can he do with my darkness? I'm not just talking about sin. I'm talking about everything that sin has brought. All the deep, bitter suffering. If, if he can start in 
bring restoration and sweetness in such bitterness like this, then what kind of sweetness will he bring in my bitterness? He makes all things new. We have a Savior who does not shy away from or back away from or avoid broken places and broken people. We have a Savior who begins in broken places and broken people. Maybe it's the sin, of, the darkness of your own sin and idolatry. Jesus began his ministry in a place that was known for his idolatry. Not just for his idolatry, but it's human sacrificing idolatry. Maybe it's your suffering. Well, Jesus began redemption in the place where thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people died. Now the question is, will we trust the King Redeemer? Will we trust him to step into the darkness of our broken marriages? You know, Jesus can fix that dark, broken marriage. You know, Jesus is the restoration from all the scars that you have experienced from decades at the hand of your husband or the words of your wife. Jesus is the one who can sweeten the bitterness of your, your prodigal son. Jesus can bring light to your broken family. He can bring light to your broken schools where statistics tell us that one in three kids are like going hungry and the only meal they have is at schools. Jesus can bring light there. He can bring, he can bring light to your broken jobs where there are people at your jobs Suffering with things that you could rarely imagine. Do we hope in him and ask him to step into the darkness of our own bitterness? Of our own bitterness. We have been through some deep, deep, dark things. People have said unimaginably hurtful things. People have done unimaginably hurtful things. Do we give up and resign ourselves to bitterness? Or do we say, step in, sweeten the bitter waters. You did it once at Mara. You can do it here. Sweeten my bitterness. Do we ask him to shine light into the darkness of our private thoughts? Or do we love our darkness more than we love the light? Do we really want Jesus to shine the light on the dark computer room? On the dark closet. On the dark iPhone. In the dark break room where we sneak away with the secretary. Do we really want Jesus to shine light in there? Do we love the darkness just a little too much? Or do we want him to shine light? When we watch the news, do we hope in the Messiah's light coming to places like Ukraine and Syria? San Antonio, Texas, where... Dozens were just shot down in a Walmart. When we see things like that, does our heart just stir up and say, Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel? Or do we say, Wait till the 2020 election. We'll get our guy in there, or our gal, and then restoration will come. My friends, do we respond in faith in the Redeemer when we hear that thousands are starving in Venezuela? Do we pray that redemption will come? Do we look at the graves of our loved ones as the dead end of hope and happiness? This is where our happiness ends. Or do we see it for what it really is? A toothless, 
dangerous lion that's already been defeated and one day will be killed. And when Jesus comes back, that grave is the place from where the body will come up. And for all eternity, walk in the presence of Jesus. Is that what we hope for? That's the hope that Matthew intends for us to have. But it goes even further than that. It's a challenge. Jesus has stepped into our darkness. Do we step into others' darkness? My friends, we Christians are the worst about this. We flee from darkness. We run from it. We shy away from it. My friends, Jesus said, you are the light of the world. We mirror our big brother. The glorious light stepped into humanity's darkness, shined on us, raised us to life, and now we're light to others. How have we been light as Christians? You're not to stay in holy huddles and fishing boats. You're to leave the nets, leave the boats, leave the fathers, step into the darkness, go to Rome, go to northern Africa like Matthew did, go to India or Italy. Go to Dominican Republic. Go to Venezuela. Go to Cucuta. Go to the neighbor's house that you know every other night you're going to hear a shouting match and something breaking. Go to the kid who flinches every time you walk by. Don't flee from the darkness. That's not what you've been called to. You are fishers of men who fish in the dark. That is us. And that's to what we are called. Verse 25 ends with great crowds following him from Galilee, from Decapolis, from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. It's a beautiful picture, and it sets us up for what's to come next. He sees all these crowds in Matthew 5, and he gives the most famous discourse most people know about called the Sermon on the Mount. So we actually stop here for now. We're going to pick up three weeks of an Advent series where we look at the songs of the Messiah. And then we pick it back up in January with the Sermon on the Mount. Just a a few things to think through. Matthew has masterfully walked with us through the first few years of Jesus' ministry. From his birth to his dwelling in Galilee. All to prove that he actually is the son of David. The long-awaited king and Messiah whose reign will bring Abrahamic blessing to all nations and restoration to all the earth. As Matthew's already foreshadowed, he will not do this by self-exaltation. He will not do this by self-proclamation. He'll do this by sacrificing himself, by suffering, by taking on humanity's brokenness and being broken himself so that we may be made whole. And so all of this pointing forward, light coming into the darkness, and we are one step closer in Matthew 4 to reading of how the light was nailed to the cross for you and I. How the light was buried in his own tomb. And how the light broke through even the darkness of death on the third day and now promises that light will come to us when we die. And we will have eternal life forever and ever and a resurrection to come. Therefore, all of the good, redemptive promises of God find their yes and amen And Jesus, the King. When we went through Genesis, when we went through Exodus, some people said it felt like we were reading the New Testament. I hope going through this New Testament book in Matthew, you felt like we've 
journeyed through the Old Testament. Because Jesus has brought our brokenness to an end, the darkness of Genesis 3 has been turned back, and the light shines, and it will not be overcome. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your goodness and your blessing. God, we thank you for the way that you have shined light into our darkness. God, I pray that for those that are in here that can say that they have dwelled in the darkness of sin or the darkness of suffering. Father, I pray, Lord, that you will bring them light. God, there are people in here right now suffering with depression. There are people in here right now suffering with bitterness. There are people here right now that are suffering from the consequences of their own sin. There are people in here right now that are suffering because of the consequences of others' sin, not sin of their own. God, there are people who have held hands with loved ones. There are people who have waited beside bedsides. There are people who have prayed on bended knees. There are people who have fasted. Deprive themselves of good things, Lord, in order to make their prayers even more powerful. God, I pray that in this moment you will bring light into the darkness. And if there be any here that actually would say that they are in darkness, that they would look to Jesus, Father. Whether they already be a Christian or not, God, I pray that all our eyes will be to the light. And God, I do pray for peace. I pray for complete restoration and joy in Jesus. We long, we long for the dead to rise. We long for broken babies to get up out of their beds and to sing and dance in a new heaven and new earth with the lion of the tribe of Judah and the lamb of God. We long for marriages not to be broken. We long for our own sin not to bring us Uh, death and destruction. God, we long for life. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen.